0: Welcome to American Myths, exploring common American misconceptions and the reasons why we may believe them. I'm your host, Andre Fisher. For our first episode for this series, we will examine the common misconceptions held regarding our nation's crime rates and policies. We have the honorable opportunity to sit down with one of, what I'd like to argue, to be the greatest minds in our criminology and public policy field. With me today is Dr. Elliot Curry, a professor of mine here at UC Irvine's Criminology Law and Society program. Dr. Curry is a graduate of Roosevelt University in Chicago and has received his PhD in sociology from UC Berkeley. His multiple outstanding novels have yielded him many distinctive awards. A finalist for the 1999 Pulitzer Prize in general Nonfiction for his novel Crime and Punishment in America. The topics of his most recent novel, The Roots of Danger, Violent Crime in Global Perspective, will be discussed today as well as some additional crime-related topics. Dr. Curry, thank you so much for being willing to sit down for a conversation with me today. Thank you. So on today's episode, I want to talk about crime, crime control, and how certain crime policies and myths held and believed by our society lead to the injustices experienced by everyday people. But, you know, before we proceed any further, Dr. Curry, um, in case my introduction was not sufficient enough, why don't you briefly share with us what you'd consider to be area of expertise and specialization and anything else?
1: Well, I think you did a great introduction. I think the only thing I would add is uh, I've been studying crime for a long time. I've been teaching here at UCI for the last about 15 years uh, and for 13 years before that at UC Berkeley in the legal studies program. I'd say my specialization has to do with the causes of crime, particularly serious violent crime. Uh, I'm very interested in how this varies internationally because I think that tends to teach us a whole lot about where violence comes from and what we might do about it.
0: Wonderful. okay. thank you. so i I kind of have like a very like vague question to begin of, but I mean, why are we so why are we as a society so violent? I mean, why do we every day you go on you go on Twitter, you go on any type of social media and you see we have another shooting and it just feels like it's it feels so mundane at this point. And, um, you know, I did some research and uh, according to the FBI crime clock of 2017, a violent crime occurred every 24.6 seconds. That's what? Three thousand six hundred crimes a day. That's that's nuts. is Is this true? And I mean, if if you think it's true, then. It feels like something is wrong with the criminal justice system. Is it not supposed, to, like, is it not stopping crime? What, what do you think?
1: Well, let me start by saying that, you know, I'm not a big fan of that crime clock thing particularly, but I think you put your finger on what really is, is a terribly pressing question, which is why should it be that the United States, uh, which is in many respects, of course, a very prosperous, a very wealthy country, a place that has a lot of opportunities. Why is our society so uniquely violent when it comes to comparing us with other advanced industrial societies? Um, And that's a question that I've been concerned with for a very long time. I think the, you know, it's a big question that you ask, and I think we're going to have to break it down into various pieces, of course, but I think I might start by saying that I think, um, We'd be making a mistake to think this is all about the criminal justice system, right? Because in my experience, um, what I think I know about the roots of violent crimes, if they have much less to do with the criminal justice system and everything to do with the way a society is organized, the kinds of opportunities that are available to people, the kinds of inequalities that they suffer, deprivations that they suffer, the kinds of on the positive side, the kind of supports that are available to them. And that's where we're going to begin to find some answers.
0: I see. Okay. And so, Tell me, you mentioned that um, you're not a fan of the FBI crime clock. Why is that?
1: I just don't think it tells you very much. And, uh, you know, knowing how often a crime occurs is so dependent on things like, well, how many people have you got in your society, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, a much, uh, much more relevant and much better kind of statistics to be looking at, uh, the ones that I like most of, are, are data on homicide, either the data that also come from the FBI Uniform Crime Report, or even better are uh, international medical data that are based on uh, cause of death statistics. If you look at those, uh, what you can derive from them is a... Um, is a crime rate, a homicide rate in particular, which I think is the best statistic that we have if we want to understand violence in particular. Um, and that, um, that tells us uh, it controls for the size of the country. So we then learn from that kind of statistic, what is the likelihood that somebody in your society could be the victim of a serious violent crime?
0: Do both of them control for population sizes? So you mentioned, okay, so let, let's backtrack, backtrack a little bit. You mentioned Uniform Crime Reports and you mentioned medical data. Could mm-hmm. you go on a little specific on what those are?
1: Yeah, well, the Uniform Crime Report, uh, you know, as you know, is a compilation from a, uh, law enforcement agencies around the country of crimes that are reported to the police. And that has a lot of problems because some crimes in particular are only kind of unevenly reported to the police. That's particularly true of things like violence against women. Uh, It's very true of rape. It's true of a number of other kinds of crimes. It's not so true of homicide. Homicide is pretty regularly reported. So when you get a number uh, being reported to the FBI about homicide and then they publish it, you can be pretty sure that that's reasonably accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, And the FBI publishes that both as an absolute number of homicides in the United States and also as a rate per 100,000 people. Same is true when we get medical data on homicides. I, I tend to think those are even better. They're even more uh, accurate. Uh, but you can derive the same kinds of figures. You can get an absolute number on how many homicides exist in this country or in Sweden or in Japan or in South Africa, uh, wherever it may be. But you can also turn that into a rate. And that's how we really begin to shine a searchlight on the international differences in the likelihood of, of violent death for example, between societies.
0: I see. Okay. And so you mentioned international societies versus, per se, America, you know. And so, I, like I said earlier, it feels like I go on Twitter and I see, oh, there's a mass shooting in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Oh, the next day, another unfortunate event happens. You know, does this happen everywhere? I mean, obviously, we know the United States is... um the political climate is very divided on how to solve this problem of guns. But um, what, how do we compare it to other countries?
1: Yeah, well, that's a very interesting question. And I think it becomes complicated because there are at least two parts to it. I think when you mentioned the, the recent Virginia shooting, for example, um, that's one side of the problem, is this what I think we really would have to call an epidemic of mass shootings, whether in the workplace, as in the Virginia case, or in, in uh, educational settings and school settings. That's one kind of problem. Another kind of problem that's pretty distinctive in the United States, though, and which is actually a much more widespread problem, is what I sometimes call everyday violence, right? It's the shootings, the homicides uh, that take place on the street. Pretty routinely, particularly in the inner cities of, of you know, all across the country. On both levels, it appears that we have much higher rates of these kinds of tragedies than most other societies once you get outside of the third world. If you begin looking at third world countries or developing countries, then some of those countries have considerably higher rates of that everyday violence, everyday homicide than we do. So if you live in a place like El Salvador, Honduras, South Africa, Brazil, and a few other places around the globe, you see extraordinarily high rates of everyday homicide, homicide related to drugs, related to gangs, related to domestic violence, and so on. We stand out. To an extraordinary degree among the other advanced industrial societies in the level of that kind of everyday homicide that we have. So our homicide rate, as measured by the medical data right now, is roughly six per hundred thousand, right? Which is a very abstract number until you realize that many European countries and many Asian countries are well below one per hundred thousand. It's down wow. to about in Japan and Singapore, for example, which are kind of at the low end of the scale. But those are huge, huge differences. We're really kind of in a league of our own. Now, when it comes to the mass shootings, the things like the Virginia uh, shooting this weekend, it's a little bit harder to know because our records of kind of deciding what's a mass shooting, how are we gonna define that? Uh, Is that gonna be defined differently across different countries? It's a little bit harder to make those comparisons. But I think on the evidence, we also have more of those proportionately than other societies do. In this case, we're hardly alone, however, because some of the most really dreadful and tragic examples of that kind of shooting have taken place in countries that are otherwise not very violent places. For example, the recent shooting in New Zealand where a white supremacist nationalist gunman opened fire at two Muslim mosques. That was, you know, a very high level of casualties in that one. One of the The most extreme and and, uh, most tragic of these events took place in Norway a few years ago when something like 72 people were killed by a lone gunman. So it happens in other places. And those are a couple of societies, by the way, New Zealand and Norway, where there's not a lot of everyday violence. There's not a lot of everyday homicide. They have very low homicide rates, very low violent crime generally. But you can still have this kind of thing taking place.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So... People say that, oh, humans are just naturally evil. People are animals. We're we're bound to commit crime. But then if you look at the numbers and you look at societies where they're the same people, same morals, for example, but they don't have those same crime rates. So are we naturally evil? Is this like a societal problem that we have? What do you think?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that's a very good question. And I think, in fact, those really stark international differences tell you that that kind of explanation that says, oh, it's just got something to do with our basic human nature, which is a bad or evil human nature, kind of blows a hole in that kind of argument because it's so different. I mean, comparing the United States with Japan, for example, is one fairly extreme example, but it gets even more extreme because if you look at a country like um El Salvador or Honduras, both of which have had homicide rates, which have occasionally in recent years topped 100 per 100,000. Now, you compare that with that Japanese rate of 0.3 per (laughs) 100,000 or the sort of standard Western European rate, which is around 1 per 100,000. You're getting uh, a disparity there that's, you know, talking about more than 200 times. The rate in Japan. So you can't explain this stark difference Mm -hmm. uh, by reference to some kind of invariant human nature or human evil that's driving these things. And sure, we've all got the potential to be able to do these things. Nobody really denies that. But what these stark disparities really do suggest is that the way you organize your society makes a huge difference.
0: I see. And do you think society has been organized differently from, let's say, the 1950s to today? Or, I mean, in other words, has crime, you know, people always on TV saying stuff like, oh, crime's going up, we're so violent, X, Y, Z. And so based on your research, has crime been increasing or decreasing?
1: Well, it's a very complicated question, and I think it depends on exactly where you're looking and what particular time period you're looking at and what particular kind of crime. And again, I think where we understand this the best probably is if we look at homicides specifically, because that is the most reliable uh, data that we have. Um, But it's very complicated to try to answer the question of whether that's increased in the United States. Again, let's break it down in terms of the the two types of, of, of violence we've been talking about, the mass shootings versus that kind of everyday homicide. I think on the evidence uh, we are having more of the mass uh, episodes of gun violence in the United States than we've ever had before. Uh, again, it's f- the data are not very uh, solid on that, but I think just uh, those people who have tried to take a, a hard look at it, I think would, would suggest that in the last few years in particular, we're seeing a uh, kind of an upsurge of this, which is highly unusual. Why that should be, I think, is extremely complicated. Surely some of it has to do with a kind of copycat phenomenon, which really scares me, frankly, because I think once you once you begin to get uh, young kids, for example, who are troubled in one way or another and who are dissatisfied with their life in one way or another, and they see others in the same situation, taking that out by... Uh, opening fire in their school or, or people who are disgruntled at work, you know, uh, shooting people in the place where they, uh, where they work. Uh, I think you do begin to get the emergence of a kind of almost like a subculture uh, that supports this kind of behavior. Uh, and that's scary. That's very scary. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to the, um, when it comes to everyday violence, everyday homicides, uh one, one of the remarkable things about um, our current homicide rate in the United States is that it's, it's quite high, again, compared to other uh, countries around the world that are developed societies. It's lower than it was at its peak, which was back in the late 1980s and early 1990s. So it's about six now. It was about 10 back then. And there have been a couple of other times uh, in recent decades when it's been that high. But one of the things we have to keep in mind in assessing this, these numbers is how high this rate remains, as well as the rate for certain other violent crimes, despite the fact that we've also massively increased the number of people we've put behind bars in the United States. Right? So when we began the sort of social experiment, massive social experiment of putting more and more people, Behind bars, so that we went from three hundred thousand people in our jails and prisons in the early nineteen seventies, you know, up to two and a half million by the twenty first century. This is a huge transformation, and many people thought that that transformation was going to basically eliminate crime in the United States. Well, newsflash, it didn't do that, <laughs> and it didn't do that uh, in spite of the fact that people really thought that that serious violence might be. Um, radically, radically diminished when this happened. Well, it wasn't. We have a narrative about uh, recent years in America where we talk about the crime drop, and to some extent that's true, particularly if you look at, again, at that period, late 1980s, early 1990s, crime, including homicide, fell, particularly in the, in the 1990s, then kind of leveled off. But what's remarkable to me is how high it remains both when we compare it with other countries and when we compare it with our own past, given that extraordinary investment that we've made in trying to quash it. There's one other thing I'd point out that people don't talk about very much, but it's very relevant for understanding the trends in our homicide rate. And there's been some research on this, which is pretty interesting. Um, One of the things that determines your homicide rate is not just how many times, for example, people get shot, but whether they die of that gunshot wound So one of the variables that we have to take into consideration is the level of medical proficiency and putting people back together and saving their life if they've been the victim of a gunshot wound. And there is some research that indicates that the fact that we have become better, we've gotten really pretty good at this. The medical field, both in terms of, you know, the actual surgical techniques of repairing a gunshot wound, We know how to do that better, but also things like our ability to transport people quickly to the kind of hospital setting where they're able to receive this kind of treatment, that's improved radically too. So some research says, for example, that our homicide rate would be much higher today than it actually is, were it not for those medical advances. So it's not that people aren't trying to kill each other as much, it's that we're able to save them more often. So we would have an even higher rate of homicide than we do. Some people have put it way up to say that our homicide rate would be double or even more what it actually is were it not for those medical advances. so
0: Thank God for those,
1: huh? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, what they do is they kind of mask, in a sense, the serious right. continuing seriousness mm-hmm. of the problem. So people say the homicide rate's gone down, so that means we're becoming a more peaceful society. Well, no, it means that the docs are better at putting you back together again, which is
0: different. And so speaking of crime rates, the notion of crime rates going down, but then you don't consider everything else, you kind of mentioned earlier how our prison population is just around two and a half mil now, and um we're putting so much money into the prison system, meaning... We're so "quote unquote" tough on crime. So let's talk a little bit about the policies around being tough on crime, and what that really means. What? What? So we, since the Bill Clinton era, we had the three strikes on the app, you know, and um, we've had um, offenders, repeat offenders, who were arrested for possession of an illegal drug, spend. X amount of years in prison and even life sentences in prison since the 90s. Now, has that actually helped us be less violent, being tough on crime? Is that an actual thing that really helps our society?
1: Well, I think this is one of those situations where you have to say, compared to what? Uh, like particularly if we're looking at the impact of imprisonment, the vast increases in imprisonment on our, our rates of violence and whether that has made us safer. You know, there's been a lot of kind of very um, complicated quantitative research done on that question. Like, is there a crime reducing impact, a violence reducing impact of, you know, X amount of increase in the prison population? And if you look at the problem that way, then it turns out that, yeah, you know, you figure if you double the prison population, then it's going to reduce this, that, and the other crime by such and such percent. Two things are very important to think about there. One is that, even the most favorable research always said that it doesn't reduce crime nearly as much as some people expected it would and then secondly the question is well what are you comparing that to are you comparing it to doing nothing or are you comparing it to doing something else which is a, a you know a more positive alternative for example dealing with some of those underlying social and economic factors uh, absence of opportunities, absence of social supports, and so on, which we know are very closely related to violent crime. So the question really is, by comparison with making those kinds of interventions toward greater equality, greater opportunity, greater human support and possibility, uh, creating greater conditions for human beings to flourish and thrive in our society, compared to that, does getting tough uh, particularly with mass incarceration, does that work? And I think the answer is unambiguously no. Getting tough is a is a massively inefficient approach to that. And we see that in the numbers. And again, it was supposed to. When we first began doing this back in the 70s and 80s, people really thought this was going to do the trick. That all we needed to do was toughen those sentences, lengthen the amount of time people spent behind bars, put more people behind the bars in the first place for crimes that we hadn't thought about doing that for in the past, as you pointed out. So the thing is, that was an experiment. We've tried that experiment, and now the results are in. We still have this massive problem of serious violent crime, and we have this problem of uh, world-beating prison populations. So it's that juxtaposition, right, the persistence of the juxtaposition of the world's highest incarceration rate and the highest rate of homicide, for example, among all the advanced industrial societies. It kind of blows a hole in the idea that this is an effective strategy.
0: Yeah, definitely. And um, just to put, you know, a walking definition of what you were just saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but that would be called deterrence. Right. Um, the notion of what is it going to take to make sure an everyday person does not commit crime? Being tough on crime, in a sense, quote unquote, is deterrence. Is this correct to say?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly one of the ideas behind uh, the Get Tough movement. The great, great Get Tough experiment that we engaged in was exactly the idea of deterrence. That if we get really tough, we threaten people with very lengthy sentences, Yeah. You know, in a state prison or a federal prison for a crime, then they're not going to do it. Uh, The other piece of it uh, is also the idea of incapacitation, which simply means, of course, that by locking up people for a very long time, if they commit those crimes, then they're going to be taken out of the game, right? And that's going to reduce our crime rate too. And behind this, I think, was the idea that there's a relatively small number of people out there who are committing most of the crimes. We kind of know who they are. The problem is that we're just not getting tough. We're not cracking down on those people. We're foolishly letting them run around on the street, put them behind bars, lock them up, throw away the key, and, you know, we're done and done. But that now we see the results again. It was not an effective strategy.
0: So if being tough on crime is a myth. I mean, if you're saying that uh, the data shows us that our incarceration rate is high, but our homicide rate is also high compared to other countries, but we are being tough on crime. So what, what, how do you combat violent crime? How do we help people and how do we reduce this this violent crime that occurs so often now?
1: Well, I think that's the the very fundamental question, you put your finger on it, and uh, I think we know a lot about how to do that. Some people would disagree with me in the criminology <laughs> business and they'd say, well, you know, we don't really know enough and we can't, we can't be certain about policies. I, I'm much more optimistic um, than that. I think we know a great deal about, and particularly this question about what it is about a society that leads it to become either violent or not so violent. I mean, every society's got some amount of violent crime, but again, the differences between them are just enormous. And we know what goes along with those differences in violence. Again, things like extremes of inequality, uh, things like a very high degree of deprivation, uh, in some communities within the society. I think that's particularly true if that also has a racial or ethnic component, so that the people at the bottom uh, are not only unequal economically, but they're being put there because of racial or ethnic differences, as there's some people in the society who are considered to be. It's okay for them to be down on the bottom. Well, That's a volatile situation. That's almost a recipe, I think, for for high levels of violence. The absence of social supports, again, whether we're talking about, you know, what we sociologists call informal social supports, which means things like strong families, uh, communities that are stable and solid and supportive of their members, or whether we're talking about public supports like, you know, everything from uh, subsidized child care to effective education to full employment programs, you name it. Those supports are uh, an enormously effective uh, measure against violence. And on the contrary, their absence is, again, part of the recipe to create a violent society. And there are other things, too. Uh, certainly weapons are part of the picture. Uh, I think it's not. You know, it's obviously not accidental that we have the high homicide rate we do, and we also have very, very weak gun regulations compared to almost every place in the advanced industrial world. But that's not the whole story, but it's it's an important piece
0: of it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I agree. Um, so, do you think, if you look, you mentioned kind of the disparities that exist in the folks that don't have access, per se, for types of um, societal benefits or access to um, things that people who do have access for them, for those types of things, can flourish and prosper. And so if we look at specific... I mean, we talked about the prison population, so let's just talk about ex-felons. You know, what happens when a prisoner gets released from prison serves his or her sentence gets released are they able to fit in right away within society what happens then
1: well that's a very good question i'm i'm glad you ask it because i think this is a uh, an often underestimated part of our crime problem right we tend to think of uh, people committing crimes and then going to prison, and then hopefully they get better. But a huge part of our crime problem is what we would call recidivist crime, right? It's the crime that's committed by people who do come out of some kind of confinement in a prison or jail. And then for one reason or another, they they don't successfully uh, re-enter society. Uh, and we have, you know, lots and lots of research on what goes on there. Um... I think that we do an extraordinarily bad job in this country of of uh, figuring out how to successfully integrate people into society. This whole idea that we reintegrate them, by the way, is maybe the wrong phrase because it may be that they never were integrated into a functioning community, right, in the first place. But let's use that phrase reintegration for the moment. It You know, in in order for that process to happen, we have to have something for them to come out into. And that in particular, we have to have some kind of productive role for them in the society that involves meaningful work uh, that they get paid for. They get paid for to a degree that, you know, means they can actually put a roof over their head and hopefully support a family. Again, all of these things are very helpful in terms of keeping people away from crime. If we fail to provide that, or we sort of assume that somehow they're going to put that together on their own, or the forces of the economic market are going to make it happen. Well, good luck with that. It's not going to happen. And that's what we see over and over again now. We see, for example, we have some pretty effective programs that are designed to help people with the initial stages of reentry, whether it's helping them deal with a a substance abuse problem, for example, or giving them a short-term work when they come out of prison, sometimes these things work pretty well until that person has been out of the program for a while. And then they come up against the fact that, uh uh-oh, now I'm out in the regular community and there's no jobs in the community for people like me. Uh, There's no opportunities that are for anything other than the most menial, low-wage, and intermittent kinds of work, for example. Well, that's not going to work. But we see that phenomenon over and over again. And if we're going to stop that recidivist crime, we have to really make a much, much better effort uh, to provide that sort of social and economic infrastructure for people who are coming out.
0: And, you know, you talk about recidivism. Uh, how prominent is it? Well, it's, it's
1: hugely prominent.
0: Uh, there's just been
1: some recent... Uh, figures put out by the Justice Department uh, where they have followed people coming out of prison in a number of states around the country for nine years uh, to see what happens to them over the course of nine years. And we've always had uh, citizen data for shorter periods, three years, five years, and so on. But now they've got data for for nine years. And if I remember correctly, the figure is that 86% of people who they uh, you know, studied coming out of prisons in I think 14 states in the United States uh, had been rearrested at least once over the course of those uh, nine years. And the average number of arrests was something like five over the course of that. So, 86%. Uh, wow. 86%. That's...
0: Now, that doesn't
1: mean they necessarily went back to prison or right. even that they got convicted, but mm-hmm. it does mean something's going on. And And, of course, that's just the ones who Got arrested, so we know something happened. But many of these people perhaps broke the law, and we don't, we don't even know. know about it. Right? No. Mm-hmm. We wow. never know about it. So yeah, the numbers are huge. And again, I think the numbers are huge because we're really not doing very much outside of a handful of of relatively small scale programs, which again, do tend to look pretty good. We're really not doing very much on a national level to change the situation.
0: in speaking on the national level, let's talk about now gun violence victims. You know, when we're talking about mass shootings and stuff like that. And this, this, there's this whole notion or myth, or I don't know what to call it, but this argument, you know, that having lots of guns being present in society has a deterrent effect. We talked about deterrence. And so, like having a gun in a classroom, for example, held by a teacher will likely deter a criminal from committing a gun-related violent crime. But but then we talked about deterrence, and we saw that being tough on these individuals doesn't necessarily yield anything. And then, again, we have, correct me if I'm wrong, but our country has one of the highest gun per capita Mm -hmm. rate. And so is this argument valid? Is this sound? What do you think?
1: No, I don't think it's sound. I think it's kind of superficially appealing uh, because you think, well, yes, if 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 you know the good guy is armed, or particularly the good guy is armed in the classroom or in the school hallway, that's going to make a difference. But there's so many things wrong with that when it hits the the reality of the way the world operates and the way these shootings actually operate. I mean, again, uh, the the sheer fact that we, as as you point out, we have the uh, the highest gun density in terms of the Proportion of the population That's the word. Density, density, right? density, yeah. <laughs> uh, we have the highest level of that, uh, and yet that certainly hasn't uh, reduced our gun violence level. And and every serious piece of research that I know of uh, drives that home you know, that it, it really is not the case that there's a very strong connection between gun availability and gun violence, which stands to reason, right? Um, so having more guns out there for all kinds of reasons means that you're much more likely to have those guns fall into the hands of somebody who is going to use them in, in, uh, in criminal ways. And I think we know that. We know that clearly. That's not to say that it, you know, that sometimes you can't forestall uh, an incident, particularly one of those mass shooting incidents, if you've got somebody on scene who really does know how to use a gun and, and uh, can step in. But I'm much happier leaving that to law enforcement. The law enforcement people I know will tell you themselves that it's really very hard to stop a crime in progress, even if you are armed and even if you are a police officer who has been trained in how to do that it's very difficult to do. And the chances of hitting somebody who you didn't mean to hit, for example, are very high. The chances of being able to make that happen fast enough in the incredibly fast-paced situation of a school shooting, for example, very slim. So I think, as with every kind of violent crime, the answer really has to do with prevention rather than trying to respond in that way.
0: Right, prevention. That's, I think... Definitely, I think prevention is the key to many of of a whole discussion, you know? And so deterrence, the whole notion of it, it's reactive. And um, what's it going to take to stop someone from committing crime? But then you're being tough on someone, you're you're lengthening the sentences of individuals who have already committed crimes. You're Mm -hmm. not really fixing the problem. Right. So if we want to be preventative, how do we do that? What does that mean? What do you think? Well, I think, again, it depends on uh, what kind of
1: crime we're trying to prevent. Uh, Mm There are different. And and this is something that I think we don't don't talk about nearly enough. Uh, If you take, again, this kind of distinction that we've been making uh, today between those mass shooting situations and what I call everyday violence, I think to some extent the preventive measures are going to be different. For those things. Because the, the the kinds of people who commit those crimes tend to be different, and they're committing them for different reasons. And that, I think, is, is sort of the beginning of wisdom when it comes to thinking about how you prevent crime, is to realize that you got to tailor your preventive efforts to exactly where that crime is coming from. So to me, if you look at the mass shootings, uh, there's a couple of things going on that are obvious targets for prevention. Sometimes people say you should do one and not the other. I think that's crazy. we got to do both of these things. Obviously, there's a gun problem here, because a number of the people who've committed these crimes, sometimes with absolutely horrific results, are people who never should have been able to get their hand on a gun, particularly sometimes on the kind of gun that they got their hands on. So some of these things are committed with with weapons of war, with assault weapons, so-called, uh, which while that category is kind of murky, nevertheless you get people uh, who are really very heavily armed with weapons that were designed to kill or injure a lot of people on a battlefield. Why should some of these folks, why should anybody uh, who's a civilian really have access to these guns? I, I think we need to grow up, you know, when it comes to that. Um, But the second piece, when it comes to those shootings, does have to do with mental health. Some people think that to talk about the mental health of these shooters is to take attention away from the need to do something about the gun part of the thing. I don't believe that. I think you can focus on both. And I think it's absolutely undeniable that a lot of the mass shootings in recent years have been committed by people who had very well-known mental health problems. and the tragedy here is that what does it mean to say that they had really well-known mental health problems and yet somehow they still wound up down the road uh, committing havoc uh, with a weapon? And I think, unfortunately, it speaks to some extent to a real breakdown of our mental health systems in many places. We, you know, we just don't have enough, enough resources, enough people. Uh, we don't have the kind of proactive attitude towards really getting in and working with people's problems, so that you can turn this kind of thing around before it, you know, has had time to to develop into mm-hmm. this kind of uh, anger and uh, and alienation. Really, so I think we need to work on both on both of those levels at once.
0: And do you think is there? Are you aware of any legislation right now in, in the House or anywhere in Congress or by our state legislators that's focused on? the mental health aspect or um, basically, quote-unquote, the correct policies that will prevent these types, either mass shootings or even everyday violent crime? Is this something that's being talked about right now?
1: I think that to some extent there is, and this this to me is a pretty uh, uh, encouraging development that we are seeing now uh, really... Pretty much for the first time in recent historical memory in this country, we are seeing legislators, politicians beginning to step up on these issues in a way that they seem to have been afraid to do before. So now we do have uh, presidential candidates, uh, for example, now uh, in the example, in this massive field of 23 <laughs> candidates in the Democratic primary, you know, you've got several of these folks who are coming out very forthrightly and saying, yeah, we need to, we need to develop at least the most fundamental, the most basic uh, uh, gun regulations on a national level. It's, it's past time that we do that. That's encouraging. And then particularly on the state level, uh, in many states, we've seen uh, movements, uh, at least in small ways. To begin to chip away at this idea that everybody and their brother, no matter what their problems are, you know should be able to get their hands on some kind of a extremely deadly weapon
0: definitely, but you know it just fascinates me. You mentioned you know the whole democratic notion right now we have so many candidates, and their crime policies are different than per se Republicans and stuff like that, but I just feel like um, there should be a human problem why are there two sides why do people believe then why are people holding these types of beliefs where they um believe deterrence works or they believe that gun regulation is unnecessary or like it's not their focus you know why is this the us versus them problem rather than like let's work together why do you think that
1: um so you're asking, uh, why do we seem to be unable to work together right. on this? Yeah. And, and uh, again, my feeling is one of the most encouraging things uh, that I've seen in recent years when it comes to this issue is that we're beginning to see people uh, who are trying to work uh, together, who are uh, less afraid than they used to be, uh, politicians in particular, um, to put some common sense uh, gun regulations, for example, on the table, um, there's still an enormous amount of resistance. And I have to say that sometimes I frankly don't understand some of the resistance. I think in part it gets to some deep, uh, some deep kind of psychological things about, about America. Um, but I also think to some extent it is a problem of education that there is a, there are stories that people are taught, stories that they hear, they learn it uh, from the internet and from talk radio and about how, you know, the dreadful things that are going to happen if we do things like require background checks at at gun shows, for example. Well, how is that really going to be such a dreadful thing? Um, so I think, um, Education about that education that counters some of the myths and uh, and frankly pretty wacky ideas that people do here on the internet and uh, on talk radio. That's a very important piece of this. It's kind of an uphill battle, but I think uh, again I'm optimistic.
0: Good. Um. I mean, yeah. I'm same. I hope that once we get this type of education. I mean, that's why I wanted to do this conversation around this. You know, mm-hmm. because a lot of people believe x y and z but they're just not aware and so i have always wondered if you took some two people with completely opposing ideas on crime policies and crime controls and how you can better society and person x believes in z and person y believes in w you know um but you educated them can they come together and realize that oh yeah this is what the data shows Let me put my own differences, my own beliefs aside and then focus on actually helping people because, you know, nowadays it doesn't even feel like people are doing that. They're just pushing their own political agenda or they're everybody's just focused on themselves, you know, and so. I just, like you said, you're optimistic and I sure hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I hope
1: I am too. Uh, the, one, the one caveat that I would add to that, though, is I, I do believe in the value of education. And, and as you say, I think s- sitting people down together and talking these things through is is going to be a big help. If you look at the opinion poll data, for example, one of the things you see is that a much broader proportion of the American population supports you know what i and others would call common sense gun regulations then oppose them but then that raises the question of well why doesn't it happen then
0: exactly
1: and i think that does speak to the fact that there are some people who don't want to be on board the ship at all and they have you know interests which uh, put them in a different position Wh- i think
0: why do you think that sorry why do you think that is
1: well i think some of it is uh, just plain and simple greed some of the people who are most against common sense gun regulations are the people who sell guns. Hmm. And you really, because, you know, it's very difficult to see, for example, again, without uh, using the example of a background check, who would be against making it harder for people who, for example, have a criminal record to go and buy a gun at an unlicensed gun show? Why would you want to make it easier for criminals to have guns, right? Because uh, the usual mantra of people who support gun rights is to say law-abiding people should have guns. Okay. Law-abiding people should have guns, but these most of the measures that are on the table lately are measures to keep guns out of the hands of criminals and other people who are likely to be dangerous. Who would be against that? Well, part of the answer, I'm afraid, is you're against that if you think you can make a lot of money selling guns to everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what we're seeing.
0: Interesting. But you would say that Americans are likely to support the correct policies in our current climate or in our future decade or so. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. That's that's the reason I'm so happy to see the politicians uh, some of them anyway beginning to step up because they were so afraid that they'd get, you know, they'd never get elected or they'd get voted out of office if they dared to say we should we should have background checks at mm-hmm. gun shows or or whatever one gun a month. Um but I think they're beginning to realize that, hey, wait a minute, no, the public would really be behind us. Not everywhere. I mean, there are places, there are states, there are communities where, you know, it's a tougher fight. But nationally, nationally, uh, you know, I think the uh, the polling data are really clear. The public sentiment is very much in favor of of moving forward on this and becoming more like other countries around the world.
0: Awesome. So there is hope.
1: Yes, definitely. Okay. Definitely. I continue to think so. Helps me get up in the morning.
0: (laughs) Well, Dr. Curry, thank you so much. This has been so enlightening to hear.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: Oh, of course. And I, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and sharing all of this knowledge that you have. And I hope whoever listens to this can understand some things better than they knew beforehand, for example, and spread the word. You know, it's important to talk about these things and stay up to date about what's happening in our lives. So that Thank was so Dr. Much. Curry and my name was Andre Fisher. Thank you so much for listening in and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.